This is John Quinn, and this is Law Disrupted. And today we're talking to John Lovey of the Lovey and Lovey Law Firm based in Chicago. A lot of things that we can talk to John about. He's got a very interesting firm in terms of its origin, its history, and its structure and its practice. And he's also involved in a very interesting cannabis business. And we'll have a chance to touch on a number of these things. But really what got my attention and what I want to explore with John first is a really remarkable verdict that he won against the railroad, BNSF, in a case arising under the Illinois Biometric Information Act. John, is it Information Act? Did I state the name of the act correctly? Privacy, too. It's BIPA. This is commonly okay. known as. All right. And you, for your client, won a verdict of $228 million, which I believe is a record for uh, claims under that act. Well, it's not only a record, but it's the first and only BIPA case to actually go to trial. It was a class action involving 45,000 truck drivers and uh, the first one to go to trial. So I guess I guess it makes it the record. It is the record. The result surprised a lot of people for a number of reasons, including the fact that the, I guess the biometric data analysis was done by some third party. And, and I'd like to get into that with you. But first, can you, as a little bit of background, can you tell us who your clients were and what the underlying problem was? Sure. We represented a class of uh, truck drivers who visited uh, uh, intermodal yards in Illinois, and the railroad used to check people in by checking their IDs the traditional way, but to increase efficiency and to increase profits, they moved over to a system where you would scan your fingerprints and you'd register your fingerprints and then they'd cross-check you with a database. And nobody has any problem with that. You're allowed to do it, but Illinois passed a pretty groundbreaking law requiring that when companies do capture, collect, and store people's biometric information, they have to provide certain protections, not the least of which is uh, written consent as well as written disclosures explaining what people are going to do with your biometric information. And BNSF in this case didn't respect any of that, so they subjected themselves to statutory penalties. So the biometric information obviously was the fingerprints that were collected. And did they get any type of, did they have any communication at all with the truck drivers about what use would be made of this information or the fact that they were storing it or anything of that nature? No, that was a, a big part of the problem. You know, I think the Illinois legislatures passed this law almost 10 years ago and it didn't get a lot of attention for a long time, but now, uh, it's getting more attention as our society gets more technological. And, you know, really when you give up your fingerprint and it's linked to your driver's license, so they, the company now has your, all your information and your fingerprint, that's really like a passport to everything. And nobody knows what the future is going to bring. But if you get in a database with your fingerprint, you know, that's, that's a pretty intentional thing you should have to decide for yourself. Just to zero in on what the violation was here, I take it that just collecting the fingerprint was not a violation. Is that true? Correct. It was the fact that they didn't uh, disclose how long they were going to keep it. They didn't disclose that they weren't going to purge it. They didn't uh, protect it, uh, you know, security-wise or disclose what they were doing with security. And most importantly, they didn't get written consent. So, mm -hmm. you know, we all uh, sometimes get confronted with those forms and you have to click yes, yes, yes. And... Some people maybe say, well, that's a fiction. Everybody's going to click yes, yes, yes. But that's the law. You have to actually inform people what rights they're giving up, and they have to affirmatively say yes. And if they don't, then there's a problem. How did this case come to your attention? 
We are a civil rights firm that has a privacy practice and, and some IPA cases of our own. But in this particular case, BNSF and a different law firm, a firm called McGuire Law, had sort of gotten to loggerheads. The case had been litigated for a few years, survived summary judgment. You know, obviously the class was certified and they were getting ready for trial. And BNSF decided they didn't want to settle it. And when they got to that impasse, this other firm looked around and said, uh, boy, you know, we're really a class action firm and we don't try a whole lot of cases, uh, which is not uncommon, as you know, for class action lawyers. Uh, it's like a different skill set to be really litigators and trial lawyers. And we can talk about it, John, but that's what we do. Uh, lots of trials. So uh, they got references and they, they found their way to us. It's kind of flattering. They picked us as the firm that should try this case, both because uh, we have class action experience, because we have trial experience. And so we were able to make a deal uh, that worked for us to you know, split the fee in a fair way. And then we came in and tried the case. You got retained how far in advance of the trial? Uh, not too far about at all. You know, I think the original firm really what we tried to settle it. And BNSF, uh, through hubris or uh, maybe a pure hubris, decided they weren't going to settle it because all the other railroads settled their BIPA claim. Uh, I mean, other railroads had similarly collected fingerprints, faced similar types of claims, and they had all settled them. Exactly. There was a very similar claim that went through all through the industry. BNSF was the lone holdout that said, we want a trial, and it didn't work out for them. Well, what was their defense? I mean, they, they obviously must have thought they had some defense. They're going to take it to trial. What were they putting up as their explanation or why they shouldn't be liable? Their primary defense was that they hired a contractor to man the gates. And so if the contractor didn't respect the formalities, it was reasonable of them to rely on the contractor. And, you know, I think what they thought, since there was 45,000 class members, the absolute worst they would get hit with was 45 million thousand per violation. And that they had a decent chance to uh, win on their, you know, it wasn't re unreasonable to rely on a contractor. And really, they, they as much as said at trial, go sue the contractor, it isn't our problem. Where it went wrong for them was they, they bet wrong on liability, they got found liable in less than two hours. And the jury also found it wasn't just a $1,000 penalty for uh, acting negligently, but it was an intentional reckless uh, act, which put it in a $5,000 tier, which I don't think they contemplated as a realistic probability. And that turned 45,000 violations into 228 million. Under the BIPA Act, are there uh, specific penalties, the 1,000 and 5,000 that are actually spelled out for violations? Exactly. And the 5,000 applies in intentional and reckless misconduct. And I think when they were handicapping the case, they said, oh, the jury will never find that. And they thought that the, they would be found not liable since they had a contractor that collected and stored this information. Is that, is that correct? That's the gist. And, you know, they had the contract itself uh, tried to shift the responsibility onto the contractor. And they tried to claim they were, you know, in the dark and they didn't understand or know what was going on. But, you know cutting to the chase it was a not persuasive defense and as i said the jury got the case went to lunch and like an hour and a half later they had the verdict it was we really did uh win this trial by a lot well a 228 million dollar verdict I mean, certainly i think uh gets people's attention uh people who didn't know about bipa those of us who practice law in the privacy area know about it know these claims are out there and need to be dealt with but people who didn't appreciate the exposure uh, under BIPA for class action claims, certainly are going to appreciate it after receiving this verdict that you got. That's our hope. All of us civil rights lawyers who practice like justice expanding law, I hope we get driven out of business. You know, it would be great if all the companies took notice, stop violating people's rights, we'll go do something else. How long was the trial? It was about a week. 
about a week. There was uh, witnesses, uh, the BNSF witnesses from Texas testified, three class members testified, some people from the contractor. It was not a terribly complex trial. Was there any expert testimony? There was uh, experts that had to try to get their arms around how many class members there were and how many actual violations there were. So technical computer guys and a little bit on the security stuff too. But not, you know, I've, I'm involved in all kinds of trials and this one struck me as one of the simpler ones actually. <laughs> Biggest mm-hmm. verdict I ever got, but pretty straightforward. All right. Well, tell us a little bit about the, your firm. What are the origins of the firm? And what was your, I assume you're one of the founders. What was your idea in mind in founding the firm? I am one of the founders. I worked for a firm called Sidley Austin out of law school after clerking for Judge Shader here in the Northern District of Illinois. I worked at Sidley for about a year and a half, and I learned a lot about how to practice law uh, the, you know, with serious people that are planning to win and you know, doing it the right way. And I wasn't probably cut out for life in the big firm, so I started my own firm. I didn't have any money really to start. I did it by cutting all costs. Today, people would understand, but I practiced out of my house. Back then, it was, you know, people didn't do that, uh, but I didn't have to pay for an office. Today, you could do that. Nobody would even notice. So I basically, you know, would lean on friends to borrow their conference room when I had to meet a client or to take a deposition. I didn't have many expenses at all. My phone bill, uh, I had a fax machine. <laughs> uh, you remember what those were? This is about I do. Years ago. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, and then uh, since I didn't have any clients, in 19, Section 1983, as you know, is a civil rights uh, statute. It provides if you win, the other side's got to pay your attorney's fee. So that was an area that gravitated. I gravitated toward, I'm, you know, I'm a lefty by politics, I would say, interested in justice and uh, expanding justice in the world. So I started doing police misconduct cases again before it was trendy. Now, a lot of people do police misconduct cases. Uh, in fact, it's you know, a really hot area in light of where the country has gone. But when I started doing it more than 20 years ago, it was really hard to file cases against the police. The juries were not disposed to uh, see it your way. And they were almost, some of them were very reflexively going to find in the police's favor. So they were very hard cases. But I always believe that that was sort of the secret to my success was taking really hard cases. And, you know, I lost early on, I lost three out of my first five trials. Uh, and it made me tougher. And it said, you know, you really got to be good to play this and you got to really be prepared. You got to work really hard. And I got good at it, you know, so I started winning, firm started growing, my wife joined up. So that was Lovie and Lovie. My father had a whole career in the trade union movement and he retired uh, and he had nothing to do. And he had a law degree the whole time, uh, although he didn't necessarily practice law. Uh, so he, he jumped on too. And uh, he didn't really practice law, but he, he took some depositions and I learned a lot about negotiating from him because he had spent his whole career negotiating contracts for the workers. And it was super valuable experience. I you know, really learned a lot. And uh, it's been fun practicing with my father and my wife. My wife uh, lost interest in it, to be honest with you. She <laughs> didn't really love being a lawyer. And right. we always joked she would, she did the parts that she liked, but she realized she didn't like taking depositions, writing, going to court. You know, there wasn't really anything left there that she liked. So. <laughs> <laughs> she became a mediator. She's a conflict resolution mm. person. How big is your firm today? Close to 50 lawyers all around the country. So we were two lawyers, then we were four lawyers, then we were eight, you know, 16, and we've just grown steadily. And so we've been a small firm, mid-sized firm, been all kinds of firms. And uh, each firm has been different, but it's been very enjoyable throughout. And basically the secret to our success is because we are focused on getting justice, uh, we've been able to attract super qualified people, John, people that 
you would hire <laughs> in mm -hmm. your firm, people that could work anywhere, uh, yeah. but they work for maybe a little less money and uh, because they're really interested in putting their skills and experience and legal talents uh, into the social justice. So it's been a fantastic formula. We formed tight bond. You know, many of us have been practicing law together for a long time now. Very few people leave. And, and, you know, when they leave, they tend to move, but they stay with the firm. So that's how the firm has now got offices all over the country. So we've retained just about everybody. And uh, we've become a real force, real trial mm -hmm. force and a real, real six. You know, I think uh, when the other side uh, checks us out, they're like, wow, these guys are pretty serious. Well, I'm clearly uh, given the results that you've gotten, you you need to be taken seriously. We would take you seriously if you showed up on the other side of us, for sure. Has the mix of cases changed over the years as the firm has grown? They've gotten bigger. You know, uh, we started with the police misconduct stuff, so we would do maybe more beat them up, uh, smaller cases. Now the scale has gotten bigger. We're doing police shootings, uh, wrongful convictions, but we like to think that we're interested in a lot of issues of the day. You know, when interesting things happen, we get a lot of times uh, we get consulted and brought in. Is it all plaintiff side contingent fee work? All plaintiff side, you know, the rare, rare time we'd be on the defense side would be if there was someone who was very oriented to justice who was getting sued. But almost all plaintiff, almost all contingency. And I, and I haven't researched or anything, but I suspect there are not many firms in the United States, most 50 lawyers with zero paying clients, all contingency. So if we don't win, it doesn't work. And uh, yeah. it is working. Yeah. You're also involved in a cannabis company. Can you tell us about that? Sure. In 2014, Illinois had a contest to give away uh, about 20 cultivation licenses. And, uh, you know, we weren't following that, but uh, I have a building in the West Loop and people were calling me, calling me saying, hey, can I put a dispensary in your building? And eventually we said, what's a dispensary? We found out about this contest. We decided to apply and we won a license. They actually uh, hung us up on appeal because we had moved our location. So it took us like a year to win, but we're lawyers. So we were able to win our appeal. And so we were late to the game. Uh, a lot of our competitors in Illinois, companies like GTI and Cresco and Pharmacan, those are some of the biggest cannabis companies in, in the United States now. Something like six or seven of the original 15 Illinois companies are among the uh, you know, multi-billion dollar cannabis companies now. So we're sort of the little brother. We just you know, funded it ourselves, built a small factory, but we kept applying in other states and we kept amassing licenses. And now we are in eight states. We're trying to turn the corner. We're under a lot of financial pressure to try to build it, but we have we had borrowed some money. We built a big factory in New Jersey that's now got plants in it, a big factory in Pennsylvania that's got, now got plants in it. We got factories in California and Illinois, as I said, and we have 12 dispensaries around the country. So what we're trying to do is make a very successful cannabis company and then use that money to advance social justice in other ways. What's the name of your company? Justice Cannabis Company. Okay, Justice Cannabis. I like that. What's the mix of your time? How do you split your time between sure. law practice and the cannabis company? I like to say that I'm full-time in both. I'm very busy right now. Well, John, this has been great talking to you. Really appreciate you spending some time with us. I really appreciate it, John. Thanks for the opportunity to talk to your listeners. You've been listening to Law Disrupted with me, John Quinn. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, lawdisrupted.fm. If you enjoyed the show, please share a link on social media and follow at JBQ Law or at Quinn Emanuel. Thank you for tuning in. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. 
Find out more at podcastpartners.com.